Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? <laughs> I'm doing really well. Um, Want to start first by just thanking the welcome team and our parking team that's outside today. Can we thank them for making this a warm and inviting place by freezing out there? It is so cold. When we moved from Michigan a year and a half ago, we did not expect this. But it's okay. It's okay. Um, I also just want to take a moment and invite my friend Scott to the stage. Everyone, welcome Scott. Can we thank Scott for his message last week? Here he comes. Scott Hetherington. I am, I am so grateful for Scott, and I am so happy. <laughs> I am so happy that he is one of our elders because this is a man, a man of faith. This is a man who believed with all his heart that his team, the Washington Huskies, could beat the mighty, mighty Michigan Wolverines. And look at, and he's also not, he's just not a man. (laughs) He's not just a man of, he is a man of integrity because he honored his wager. Can we thank Scott for that? Yeah. I love it. And you know, you know what's great is that someone made us these shirts, Ryan. It's got a husky and a Wolverine. It says, "Love your enemies." I never, really, I never thought of the Wolverines as enemies. Yeah, no, it's it's got a it's got a husky and a Wolverine with Jesus in. Uh, looks like a hot and looks like in a hot tub, uh, which is great. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 great. Thank you, whoever made these. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. I'm glad yeah. that you brought this for me to fit into because yeah. you know. I'm a little more muscular. And okay, okay. Everyone, let's thank Scott, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's enough sports talk. Let's get into the Bible, okay? Yeah? All right. Uh, morning, everyone. My name's Ryan. For those that are new or visiting, I'm the lead pastor here at Arbor. We're jumping into a new series today. Before we jump into that, though, I just want to review where we've been for the last six weeks because I think if we do that, it'll help make what we're about to jump into make more sense, okay? We're, we actually have some intentionality behind what we're doing here at church, and so I just want to review where we've been. It'll help us understand where we're going. So about six months ago in June, we started a new series in the Gospel of Mark, The Life and Way of Jesus, in order to answer one simple question for our church. How do we follow Jesus? How do we do it? How do we practically speaking, what does it look like in our everyday lives in the 21st century in 2024 to follow Jesus? Our mission here at Arbor is people helping people find and follow Jesus. I bet if you did a survey of all the churches in America, there's probably 500 other churches that have that exact same mission statement. There's nothing unique about it. We, we, we see it in God's word, but what we want to be intentional about is doing the actual thing we say we're going to do which is following Jesus. And so we have gone back to one of the source documents, so to speak, to look and see firsthand uh, who was Jesus really and what did he actually do and, and what does it look like, most importantly, to actually truly follow this Jesus. And that's a series we've been in. We're gonna jump back into it in about four weeks. We're diving into the Gospel of Mark. But in September, we hit pause on that series and we went back to an Old Testament book called, do you guys remember what it was? Nehemiah. We went into Nehemiah. We went into that ancient Old Testament book and looked at that story and we were going after one thing as a church through that series and that was this idea of renewal. 
renewal, which we defined as the refreshment, release, and advancement that individuals, groups, churches, and cultures experience when they are realigned with God's presence. And we did this in part because recent studies have shown that over the last 25 years, nearly 40 million Americans have left church. They call it the great de-churching, okay? It is the, the single largest exodus of American Christians from the church over the last 25 years. And listen, rather than point the finger of blame and shame at the individuals who have walked away from the church, we wanted to take that information as a, as a community and take time to reflect and seek God both individually and corporately and invite God to show us to show us how we might better realign our lives, again, both individually and corporately, and invite God to show us how we might live in his presence. Because perhaps so many people have left the church over the last 25 years because his people and this place is no longer a people and place of his presence. And Arbor, this is really what I want us to be. I want this place to be a place where we encounter his presence. I want us to be a people of his presence. When people come through our doors and visit with us, the one thing that they walk away with that, that, that I, I really, you know, if they think like they're warm and welcoming people, that's great, but that's not the one thing I want people walking away with. Uh, They've they got a great kids ministry. Listen, I think we have a great kids ministry. That's not the one thing I want people walking away with when they walk away from this church. When they walk away from time with us, I want them thinking, man, those people love Jesus. They love Jesus. They love being with him. They want to become like him. They want to do what he did, and they are a people marked by his presence. And I don't think that just happens overnight. I don't think just that happens in sort of this lightning strike moment where we are just all of a sudden the people of his presence. I think we become a people of his presence as we follow the life and way of Jesus. I was really encouraged after that season in that book when over 50 of you signed up for our first discipleship basics class where over the course of seven weeks, not only did we just dive into the basics of, of what it looks like to follow Jesus, but we also spent four weeks diving deeply into the practice of prayer. Because I, I believe that we can't be a people of his presence unless we're a people of prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. When we look at the life of Jesus, someone whose life was marked by the presence of God, if there's one thing he did, and there's one thing he did with great frequency and great fervor, it was, it was prayer. He, he prayed. He prayed a lot. But that's not the only thing he did um, he did a lot of other things as well, and so for the next three weeks, as you could tell from our bumper, we're gonna tell, uh, we're gonna dive into a new practice of Jesus, a way of living that was embraced by Jesus to keep him in alignment with his Father's presence, and that is this practice of fasting. All right, one person is excited, there we go. The practice of fasting. Now, perhaps you think that this series and this study on fasting is timed and positioned on this, the month of January, following the holiday season of feasting in an effort to help you reach your weight loss goals. <laughs> Let me just say up front and at the very beginning, that is not the case at all. That is not the purpose of this series, not even a little bit, not even a smidge, okay? However, if you were to do a Google search for the word fasting, 
Here are some of the top results you would get right now. Eight health benefits of fasting backed by science. Intermittent fasting. What is it and how does it work? And intermittent fasting 101, the ultimate beginner's guide. Those are the results. You have to actually go all the way down to the 15th result to begin to find anything connected to fasting as we see it presented in the life and way of Jesus. So by and large, fasting in our culture has become connected to our health goals and to wellness and our increasingly complicated relationship to food and our bodies and the interconnectedness of the two. I think it's safe to say in America today that we have a pretty complex relationship with food in our bodies, yeah? On one side of the fence, we live in a culture of like food excess. Three meals a day has become the norm. Hunger and appetite are one and the same. We don't eat when we like have to, we just eat when we want to. (laughs) Snacks in between those meals, and this has increasingly become a general health problem in our culture. So on the one hand, we have this culture of food excess. But on the other hand, on the other hand, we live in a culture that worships the body. A culture that upholds these idealized, unrealistic, unattainable images of, of the male and female physique. This elevation of sexuality that if we don't find ourselves beholden to food excess, we may find ourselves beholden to something we might call body idolatry. Or perhaps, like even more likely, we find ourselves trapped and vacillating between the two in this increasingly disorienting and destructive cycle of enslavement that just leaves us exhausted. This is what the scriptures call, we're, we're driven by what the scriptures call our flesh. Now that's different than the body and we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But we are, we are driven by our flesh and the dominant cultural air that we breathe right now is set up to indulge that to market to it, to entice it, to promote to it, to draw us in to it and and make money off of our flesh and our lack of self-control. And so then, now, enter stage right in the midst of this conversation, fasting. Fasting, this ancient spiritual practice that when practiced rightly, can not only aid us in aligning our whole selves under the presence of God, but it can also be used by the Spirit of God to break us free from this unhealthy relationship that so many of us have with our bodies and our desires and our flesh. And so with that said, we are going to talk about fasting today, all right? I know the one person in the room is excited about it, and so I'm gonna teach to them. But listen, as I'm talking about fasting today, we're just gonna do two simple things today. I'm gonna lay out a theology of fasting, and then I'm briefly gonna explain what fasting is. And so listen, today is more like a spirited lecture than a sermon, all right? So just stick with me, I think this is really valuable. This sets the foundation for us for the next few weeks. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out right now. We're gonna start at the very beginning, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we're gonna start in chapter two. So you can open your Bibles. Many of you probably have it on your phones right now. You can open those up, Genesis two. I'm reading from the New English translation. Genesis two, verse four, a biblical theology of fasting. Verse four says this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and heavens, 
Now no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Verse seven, pay attention to this one. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. All right, why are we starting here? Well, here's why we're starting here. I wanna start with this. One thing that we miss in our English translation is a little wordplay that's going on in the Hebrew there in verse seven. The word for man there in verse seven can also be translated simply human, and it's this Hebrew word adam, adam. All right, now in this instance, it is not a person's name. This is not a proper noun, Adam. This is the word man in Hebrew, Adam. The Lord God formed Adam from the soil, or your translation might say from the dust or from the dirt. And that word for dust, soil, or dirt in the Hebrew is the word Adama. The Lord God formed Adam from Adama. Now, why is that important? Is that just some clever wordplay? It's like, hey, Ryan, you learned some Hebrew. Good, okay, I, 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 hear, I see that. No, no, here's why it's important. It's important because what the writer of Genesis is trying to communicate is there is this deeply important connection between us and the earth. We are deeply physical, material beings. We are physical beings and this is a reality about us as humans that is not to be downplayed or neglected. So we are physical beings, that's very important. But we are not just physical beings. Look at what uh, the second half of verse seven says. What God did next is what he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The breath of life, and that word breath in the Hebrew is this word ruach, which means breath, or it can also mean spirit, and so to sum all of that up together as human beings, you and I, we are at the same time physical and spiritual. We are body and we are spirit. We are from the dirt, but we are also from the spirit. We are physicality and spirituality, and this is different than all the other beings in the created order. Animals are physicality, angels are spirituality, and humans, we are kind of like this hybrid creature. We're like the Toyota Priuses of the created order, okay? It's probably a bad analogy, but you get the idea, right? We're body and spirit. We're both material and immaterial, and you're probably like, okay, I kind of get that, I kind of already knew that, why does this matter? It matters because, listen, you are more than your body. You are more than your body. You are more than just the physical, but hear this. Listen, some of you might need to hear this. You are more than your mind and your soul. You're you're more than your soul. In many, if not most, Christian belief systems, there is this deficient understanding of human nature that believes that we are just these physical shells that contain souls. In fact, how many of you have heard this quote before? You don't have a soul, you are a soul. You have a body. How many of you have heard that quote before? It sounds vaguely familiar to you, a few of you in the room. Do you know who that quote is typically attributed to? C.S. Lewis. It's typically attributed to C.S. Lewis. Can I tell you a couple facts about that quote? Number one, C.S. Lewis never wrote it or said it, okay? Never did, never did. It was a guy from the 19th century, not important. Listen, number two, That statement right there 
is borderline Gnostic heresy, okay? And here's why. Here's why. You don't just have a body. You are a body. You are a body. It is an essential aspect to who you are. Dallas Willard explains it this way. The new life in Christ simply is not just an inner life of belief and imagination, even if it's spiritually inspired. It is a life of the whole embodied person in the social context. And so here's what that means. Your inner spiritual life is important, but you cannot divorce that from your embodied physical life in community with others. Scott McKnight, in his book on fasting, he calls this embodied spirituality, and he writes that one of our main problems in Christianity is this. We've divided ourselves into two parts, the good part and the not-so-good part. The two parts are the body, which we typically classify as the not-so-good part, and the soul-spirit, which we classify as the good part. Now, listen, they're both good, and we're gonna talk a little bit more next week about how the body has something wrong with it, and we, scripture oftentimes calls that flesh, but listen, as human beings, we are both body and spirit, and that is good, and that is essential for us to understand, because if we don't allow that reality to sink deep down within us, fasting's not gonna make sense to us, as well as the many other embodied spiritual practices that we'll begin to practice as a church. Listen, fasting is a way for us to pray not just with our minds and our heart, but with our bodies, with our stomachs. And as we, and we do this, listen, because what we'll see in the next passage is something has gone wrong in our bodies. Turn over to the next page. Look at Genesis 3. We see what's gone wrong right at the beginning, verse 1. Now the serpent was shrewder than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, is it really true that God said you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said you must not eat from it, and you must not touch it or else you will die. Now the serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die, and that's a lie right there. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. The serpent's trying to say, hey, listen, God's trying to withhold something from you. And you will be like God. See, you're gonna be better off. You'll be like God and you'll know good from evil. In verse six, when the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attractive to the eye, was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and she what? She ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Um, now, now what I find fascinating in the context of our conversation here on fasting here is that at the forefront of this story, which is typically called the fall in Christian theology, is this idea of both food and eating. Food and eating both at the forefront and an inability to not eat what was placed right in front of them. Now, listen, I don't necessarily care how you understand this story, whether you understand it literally as history or literarily as some sort of ancient theology or some combination of the two. At at the very least, what we see here are food and eating at the forefront of the story, and that is very important. But it's also important to clarify that food and eating are not the primary temptation here in this story right now. The primary temptation in this story is humankind redefining good 
and evil. The temptation here is to trust our own instinct and the voice of the serpent rather than trust the voice of God and his desires for us and his vision for us for goodness and flourishing in our life. And isn't that what's at the core of all temptation in our life? Trusting that we know better than what God has for us. St. Ignatius of Loyola, he put it this way. He said, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. So that's the temptation here in Genesis 3, to not believe that God has our best interest in mind. That's at the core of the temptation. It's also important to know that there's like this flipping of the script that happens here. When God created man and woman, he created them to rule over this world, to rule over the plant life, the animals, the land, and yet here we have this inversion of sorts where now the animal is deceiving and ruling over the man and woman, and and this piece of fruit is ruling over the man and woman, and something has broken, something has fallen apart, and we are now ruled by our desires. We are now overcome by our longings and our wants and our desires and we struggle to find self-control and this is the state of brokenness that we find ourselves in right now. Something's wrong. Something's broken in our bodies. We're overcome. We're overrun with desires for what we see, for a desire for pleasure. Now again, it's not that the body is bad and evil in and of itself but something has gone wrong within us. So what do we do? What's the answer? As the Apostle Paul said in Romans, he said, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will rescue us? Who's gonna do it? You, anytime pastor asks a question like that, you say Jesus, you know? <laughs> Usually that's the right answer. And, and so turn, turn, to, turn to the Gospels now. Turn to Matthew, Matthew 4. We're gonna look at a story of Christ. This is a story that happened right after his uh, baptism, one of the first stories that we read about in the life of Jesus. Matthew 4, right at verse one. It says this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Does that sound familiar? Familiar at all? After he, what? What did he do? After he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was famished. No kidding, right? He was hungry. He hasn't eaten food for 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become what? Bread. To become bread. Now, listen, here again, we have food at the center of temptation. Uh, But listen, it's not that food is the temptation in and of itself, and it's also not that anything is wrong with bread. It's not that God was like, Jesus, you need to be on a keto diet, okay? That's my commandment to you. It's not not anything like that. It's just just bread. Verse 4. But Jesus answered, it is written, man, now this is a quote from Deuteronomy, from the Hebrew, and man here is the word what? Adam does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now there's a ton here, but I just want us to notice a couple things. Again, if you're feeling like you've noticed some repeated themes here in this story, that means that you're reading the story correctly. Because what's going on here in Matthew 4 is Jesus is actually reenacting, many biblical scholars and theologians, they agree on this, that Jesus is reenacting what happened in the garden in Genesis 2 and 3. Just like Adam and Eve, Jesus is face to face with the tempter, with the serpent. And just like Adam and Eve, the tempter places a piece of food at the epicenter of the temptation, not that the food is the temptation itself, but he uses food nonetheless. 
However, unlike Adam and Eve who failed their temptation, Jesus here was victorious. Where we were defeated in the garden, Jesus was victorious here in the wilderness. And in this victory here, Jesus inaugurated his kingdom of freedom, a rule and reign of life and flourishing here that is open to every and anyone who wants it. And this is good news right here. This is the gospel of the kingdom of God right here in Matthew 4. But I want us to notice how did Jesus succeed where Adam and Eve failed? Is there some kind of spiritual practice that Jesus was doing that helped him to succeed where Adam and Eve failed? What, is there? What is it? Fasting along with solitude and prayer and even scripture, but at the very beginning it says explicitly after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. And after fasting for that long, was Jesus weak and susceptible to the tempter? Or was he more powerful than ever before to resist him? Listen, I would argue that he was more powerful and stronger than ever before. Was he hungry? Was he famished? Yes. But was he spiritually powerful? Was his empty stomach but his spirit full of the spirit in that moment? He was full of God's spirit and, and he had power and control by the power of the, the spirit to take on the tempter and resist this temptation. How did Jesus begin his kingdom work here in Matthew 4? He did it through fasting. Through fasting. And as you read about his life in the Gospels, this was something that Jesus practiced over and over again, regularly fasting. Um, and listen, that wasn't that uncommon back then. Back then, Jews, Pharisees, the whole crew in the first century AD, listen, um, they practiced fasting on Tuesdays and, or Mondays and Thursdays, every week. Mondays and Thursdays, they fasted. And then the early church kind of, they were like, no, we're not gonna do it the same as you guys. We're gonna, we're gonna fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. And, and so fasting was a regular practice back then amongst those ancient people, amongst the, the, the first church, the ancient church. Fasting was sort of seen as a given back then. In fact, last passage of the morning, quickly turn over to Matthew 6 now. This is the Sermon on the Mount, often considered by many the most beautiful and profound of all Jesus' teachings. And in Matthew 6, verse 16, he briefly teaches on fasting and he says this. When you fast... Do not look sullen like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that people will see them fasting. I tell you the truth, they have, they have the reward. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others when you're fasting, but only to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I want us to notice one thing. Jesus here, he does not say if you fast, he says what? When you fast. And so there is this assumption on the part of Jesus that, that his closest followers, his closest disciples, they would be fasting. Now listen, I bet that if we took a survey of this room right now and asked, do you fast every single week? My guess would be that less than 5% of us fast. That'd be my guess. And I don't say that to shame us right now. I just say that to like highlight the reality that this once very common spiritual practice in the life of God's people, in the life of the church, has now become an entirely foreign concept. 
Like this idea of fasting was considered one of the three most spiritual practices in the life of a Christian along with almsgiving and gathering together with the saints. And now it's like we hear about fasting and maybe our first response is, oh, that's a health thing. Or maybe we think to ourselves, that's crazy. You want me to go without food for an entire day? You're a psycho. Is this a cult? What's going on? And yet Jesus assumes that his disciples will be practicing this. Okay, that's, a, that's, a, that's just a brief theology of fasting that we see in the scriptures. And hopefully you see some of the through line of fasting in the scriptures. Now I just want to spend the brief amount of time we have left talking about what is fasting. What is fasting? Over the next couple of weeks, we'll dive into the why of fasting, a little bit of the how of fasting, but for right now, I just want to answer the question, what is fasting? And I want to start by talking about what fasting is not. What is fasting not? First of all, fasting is not abstaining. Fasting is not abstaining. Perhaps you've heard people say before, like, hey, I'm, I'm gonna be fasting from social media for a while. I know I've said things like this before. Or I'm gonna be fasting from alcohol. It's dry January. Or I'm gonna be fasting from video games and PlayStation and Xbox. And, and that's great. That's also called growing up, but that's great. And, <laughs> and, and so it's like, listen, these are good things. And, and, there's, and there's, there's precedent throughout the history of the church of the people of God abstaining from good things, from neutral things that can become enslaving things to us and can actually do violence to our love and desires for Jesus. And all of that is good, good stuff. But listen, uh, as we look at the scriptures this week and in the weeks to come, all of that stuff is abstaining. And, and I highly celebrate it, but listen, it's not fasting. Listen, fasting is also not a restricted diet. How many of you have heard of the Daniel fast? The Daniel fast before? Kind of a big thing in church for a while, maybe 20, 30 years ago, on and off or whatnot. And it's, it's a good thing. It's rooted in scripture. You go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel was exiled in Babylon. He refused to eat certain foods that were offered to him by the king. He was part of the court. And, and God honored that and he blessed that and it was good. But listen, it's not fasting. Nowhere in the book of Daniel do you see the word fast or fasting mentioned once. Again, great thing, it's a restricted diet, it's not fasting. Also, simply put, as we see it in the scriptures, fasting is also not dieting. It's not dieting. Nowhere in the scriptures is fasting associated with cleansing, physical benefits, health benefits. It's not intermittent fasting. I don't think Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to fast because he was like, man, I'm starting my ministry and I gotta look good. I gotta get cut, I gotta drop some of these pounds. A lot of people are gonna paint historically inaccurate pictures of me and I've gotta like make sure I look fine for these pictures. Huberman says it's good, I gotta do this. I don't think that was his motivation. Fasting is not dieting. And so then simply put, what is fasting? Real simple, actually. Fasting's not eating food. There you go. <laughs> Incredible, huh? Fasting is not eating food. Sometimes it's not drinking water. Usually it's just not eating food. Scott McKnight defines it as a whole body response to life's sacred moments. John Piper calls it a whole body hungering for God. Dallas Willard says that fasting is feasting on our Lord and doing his will. In the Bible, there's no prescriptive length for how long someone should fast. Usually it's 12 hours, actually. Sometimes it's 24 hours. We see some fasts that are shorter, some that are longer, three-day fasts, seven-day fasts. A few guys fasted 40 days. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus all fasted for 40 days. Fasting can be done on your own, individually or corporately in a community with others. Matthew 6, Jesus is not condemning public fasting. He's just saying, don't fast to show off. That's a bad idea. That's wrong. 
don't do that, but you can fast with others. Esther, she calls the people of God to a three-day fast publicly as a community. Every single year, the people of Israel would fast on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They would fast together. Multiple stories in the book of Acts where the people of God are gathered together fasting as a community, and everyone knows that they're fasting, okay? Nothing wrong with other people knowing that you're fasting. It's good to fast together with others. What we see cover to cover in the scriptures is we read about and encounter people of God engaging with this practice of fasting. The practice of fasting is not eating food for a period of time to focus on and feast upon the Lord. That's what fasting is, real simple. Fasting is a practice of not eating food for a period of time in order to focus on and feast upon the Lord. And again, in the weeks to come, we'll unpack the why of fasting. Why is this a thing? A little bit of the how. But as we wrap things up, and I want to invite the band back on stage at this point, hear this. Fasting is about freedom, okay? Fasting is about freedom. This is not some sort of legalistic practice. In fact, even though we see fasting uh, practiced cover to cover throughout the scriptures, even though we see that, Listen, not once is fasting commanded for the follower of Christ in the New Testament. Not once. And so listen, if you don't want to do this, guess what? You don't have to do this. You're not in trouble if you don't fast. You're not any less loved by Jesus if you don't fast. You're not gaining any um, uh, more love or, or like rewards in heaven because you fast, okay? Hear, hear this, hear this. I'm gonna mention this a couple times throughout this series and in the months and years to come. Spiritual practices are not about making you more precious to God. They're about making God more precious to you. Spiritual practices are not about making you more precious to God. They're about making God more precious to you. And so all of this discussion on fasting, listen, it's an invitation. You're invited to it if you want it. You're invited to it. You're invited to, to look at the life and way of Jesus and take upon his example, Jesus, who thought he needed fasting in order to live the best and most flourishing life this side of eternity. It's just an invitation, an invitation toward more freedom and less slavery, an invitation toward more spirit, less flesh, an invitation toward more holiness, less unholiness. Listen, you're invited, not commanded, during this season of our church to follow Jesus' example here and, and bring your whole self, not just your spirit, but your body as well, under the freeing and flourishing reign of the kingdom of God. That's what this is all about. So let's go ahead and stand, and I'll pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his example, and we thank you for the invitation to become like him, to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. Lord, we, we thank you for the resurgence of resources in our world right now. People writing books, people sharing resources on how to follow Jesus well. And so during this season, as we deep dive into this practice of fasting, God, I pray that you would just open our eyes to what fasting is in the scriptures and whether or not we would be making that step in the weeks and months to come. 
Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for being a kind and gentle God who invites us into these experiences. You do not put uh, excessive burden on our backs, Lord. You say your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And so we just want to walk alongside you, God. That's, that's what we desire. Again, God, we desire to be a people of your presence. And so, Lord, I pray that in, in, in the weeks to come, where there are questions, where, where, where there is confusion around this practice of fasting, God, would you just make things clear? Would you make things clear and then open up doors and open up our eyes to see what you would have for us during this season, God? Would we seek that out individually? And would you draw our, our community, our church closer to you, God? We pray all this in your son's powerful name. Amen.